Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate towards the jackal well and dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down in its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews, or the priests, or nobles, or officials, or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Okay, well, I wonder how many of you have a space in your house that currently needs a bit of sorting out or tidying. Um, it might be a spare room or your garden shed. Um, it might be your garage, or it might even just be a, a little space, maybe like your cupboard or a certain drawer that's a bit of a mess. And for whatever reason, you've found that over time, stuff has accumulated in there, and now it needs a good tidy. Maybe you've got random belongings, um, 
the place is being clogged up, and there needs to be some sort of order that's brought to this space. Now, I know for some of you that that's an impossible scenario to imagine because you're really, really tidy. You're the sort of person who has all of their rooms at all points in the house completely immaculate. Um, your rooms could be photographed and shown in an IKEA catalogue or John Lewis if you live in Didsbury. Maybe you can't imagine this, maybe. But many of us do. Many of us have cluttered lives to some degree. We have rooms that are a little bit messy. And we know they're messy and we know we need to um, tidy them up. But for some reason, we never get around to it. It's just the cost of time and energy, maybe, that it takes to be able to um, sort it all out. So the need is there. We know that if we tidy these spaces up, we'd enjoy them. We know that we'd actually be able to find the things that are in there at the times we want them. We might actually be able to enjoy the space as it was meant and not just a collection of random stuff. But we don't do it for whatever reason. The need is there but the motivation is not there. We don't have the motivation. Now, this is our second week in a series looking at the book of Nehemiah, and we're calling this series Rebuild. Rebuild. And we noted last, last week that for us as a church, and for us as a society, for many others, this term, this new term, represents a fresh start. We're all able to meet together now. God willing, the worst of the pandemic is behind us, and we have an opportunity to try and reclaim some of the things that have been lost, readdress things, try and get back to some state of normality like it was a year and a half ago. And so this is an opportunity for us as God's people to put energy and investment into the things Jesus cares about. And that includes right here in Grace Church. We're trying to seek to rebuild our church and community life. Now, last week, we were introduced to Nehemiah, and we saw that when we're building God's kingdom, it involves a need for care. We need to actually be bothered and emotionally invested. And then prayer, we take those concerns to Jesus. But this week, we're asking the question, if we're going to unite together, if we're going to build or rebuild, if we're going to devote ourselves for God's service, how are we going to be motivated? What's going to drive us to action rather than just letting God's priorities go? like a cluttered garden shed. Now, Nehemiah is going to show us this morning that the motivation is not going to be one of guilt. I think that's something that motivates a lot of our actions. Guilt, fear. It's not going to be any of those things, but rather God's goodness. God's goodness. So firstly, as we look down at our passage, God's goodness blesses us. God's goodness blesses us. Let me just recap where we're up to in this story. So the events of Nehemiah take place in the 5th century BC in the Persian Empire. During this time, the Israelites, God's people, have been away from their land, but it's a time where they are uh, making their way back. People have been leading groups of um, Jewish people, the Israelites, away from um, Persia, where they've been in exile, back to the land, and they're seeking to rebuild things. They're trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, which is the center of religious life um, for Israelite, the Israelite people. So they were rebuilding. But the king, Artaxerxes, has ordered that the building should stop. So they started, they started building the walls in Jerusalem, pulling things back together, reclaiming. And then it was forced to halt. 
Now, Nehemiah is an Israelite, but he's not in Jerusalem at this point. He's still in the Persian Empire. In fact, he's in the capital, Susa, and he is in the um, court of the king. And he hears about Jerusalem, and he's devastated that its wall and gates are broken, that they're not being rebuilt, and he, he's just so upset about it. And we saw last time that he prays, um, he mourns, he's concerned. But at this point in the story, he tries to act. Now, we learned last week that Nehemiah is actually cupbearer to Artaxerxes. How he got to this position, we don't know. But there he is. He's a trusted servant. And, we, and he's got an opportunity to do something about the state of Jerusalem. And that's where we are coming up to this, this chapter. Now, if you look down with me um, at verse 1, it says that, the chap- it says that we're given um, a time period the month of Nisan, which basically means that since the events of chapter 1 took place, there have been four months that have passed. Okay, so that's four months of Nehemiah praying, four months of him waiting for an opportunity to do something. But then the time comes. Verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. So Nehemiah's job is cupbearer. He gets to taste the wine. He gets to ensure that it's not poisoned for Artaxerxes. And what's happened is because Artaxerxes is throwing a party, a festival, a feast, seemingly the first one in four months, Nehemiah gets to do his job and bring the wine before the king. But things are different. Look at verse um, 1 and 2. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid. So Nehemiah is is obviously, maybe he's a little bit stressed. He's worried about what he's going to say to Artaxerxes. His his time has come. How's he going to respond? What's going to happen? And it shows on his face. And the king kind of clocks it. And he says, what's going on? Why are you sad? Now, if you're sad in the court of a Persian king during a festival, this is pretty bad news. Because your job, if you're a servant, is to you know, look smiley and happy. You've got to maintain the positive vibes. You can't be a mood killer. And if you did, it was very dangerous for you. You might be imprisoned or even killed. I guess house parties back then were a little bit more intense than they are now. But Artaxerxes sees that Nehemiah is looking sad, and so you can understand why (laughs) Nehemiah feels fear. And so the stakes are high. He's come to this king, who is basically a dictator. He, He rules the whole Persian Empire. He's already committed a serious faux pas in looking sad, and he's about to ask Artaxerxes to go against his previous um, law in allowing Jerusalem to be rebuilt. So he's trying to get a dictator to reverse his policy. So Nehemiah is out on a limb here. He's out on a limb, and it's a dangerous situation. So the king asks him, what's up? And Nehemiah speaks, verse 3. I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? And the end of verse 4, I think, is genius. 
Then I prayed to the God of heaven. This was obviously just like a very quick prayer that he said in his mind. Like, Lord, help me, before he speaks. And then he speaks. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And what happens? Verse 6. The king was pleased to send me. Nehemiah gets a miracle. And he even gets more than that. In verse 7 to 9, he asks the king for more. He's, you know, why quit while you're ahead? Keep asking. Um, So he asks for official papers for safe travel. He even asks the king for wood to be able to build the walls and his own house. And he gets it. And so by verse 9, Nehemiah is traveling with an army escort. It's incredible. Now, what, how would you sum up what's happened in those, in those events, in those verses? Nehemiah does it kind of autobiographically. Look at verse 8. He says, Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. He might have written that sentence differently. He might have said, The king granted my request because I got lucky. Or, The king granted my request because I managed to win him over. But that's not what he says. The king granted my request because of the gracious hand of God. So for Nehemiah, behind any planning he'd made, behind the circumstances, the mood of the king even, God was at work. He was in control and he was working purposes. Um, events for his purposes. And so Nehemiah in that verse, he's like holding his hands up. He's like, look guys, it wasn't me. Okay. It wasn't me. It was God who did this. And particularly he says it's God's goodness, his goodness. Now Nehemiah here articulates a point that all of us need to pay attention to. And that's this, in any blessing that we receive, any answered prayer or any good thing that we got and we didn't pray for, we experience it because of God's goodness. His goodness. Theologians in the past have described God's goodness as his inclination to deal kindly with his creatures. He's inclined to bless them. As the psalm says, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. And so ultimately, whoever we are, all the good things that we receive from God, all the good things we receive come from from God, not ourselves, and not pure luck. Now, this includes big answers to prayer. We could consider as a church being in this room a big answer to prayer. You know, this school is not hiring out its premises um, in general. It's not opening, opening up its booking we have a kind of special relationship with school, us and some people who use um, the sports facilities. We're the only people at this point that the school is renting this hall out to. That is God's goodness to us. It's God's goodness to us. But it's not just the miraculous stuff that God gives us. It's actually everything. When we stop to think about it, there are so many things that we take for granted that we receive from a God of goodness and kindness. Think about your senses, your ability to see things and hear. Think about your health, your hobbies. Think about the capacity you have to think and to love and to be known and to know others. 
Think about cookie dough ice cream. It's a sign of God's goodness to us. Life post-COVID, the ability to be able to go in each other's homes again, hug our friends and family, these are signs of God's goodness. And of course, ultimately, salvation is his sign of goodness. The fact that he would save us and bring us into his kingdom when we don't deserve any of these things. We deserve none of them. And yet, if we trust in Jesus, we have access to what the Bible calls eternal life, world without end. That's what we have by God's goodness. And if we have eyes to see it, God's goodness is everywhere. There's a great story of um, the Victorian London preacher, Charles Spurgeon, going for a walk with his mate in the country. And they're like schoolboys giggling and kind of having lots of laughter. His mate tells a story and he kind of, it says, he, he just burst out laughing. And then he turned to his friend and he said, brother, let's kneel before God and thank him for the gift of laughter. Now, does that sound a bit over the top to you, a bit silly? All right, yeah, laughter, fine. Well, it, it won't sound silly to you if you understand that all things are a gift from a good God. Even the things we take for granted, they're mercies. It's his compassion. And it reminds us that things could have been otherwise. Things could have been otherwise. God was not obligated to give us the many good things we experienced. We didn't have to be here this morning. We might not have got this. We might not have received many of the wonderful things that we have. We were not owed them, but the blessings are a gift. And so what should our response be then? We've got to be like Nehemiah, haven't we? We've got to write that sentence like he does in verse 8. The blessings I received, all these good things that have happened, are because the gracious hand of God was on me. I wonder, what have you taken for granted that God in his kindness has given you? Maybe it's time to just stop and think about that for a second. It might just be the little things without which we would actually be a lot sadder. God's goodness blesses us. Blesses us. But secondly, God's goodness motivates us. So in the second part of the chapter, Nehemiah makes his way to Jerusalem for the first time. In verse 11, he goes by night. He goes on a bit of a recce, on a recon mission. He's trying to figure out what the state of these walls are. He inspects it. He goes round it. He's thinking about plans for the building project. But he's quite secret about it because he doesn't want other people to know um, in case you know, informers leak the plans to his enemies or any, you know, things like that. So he does, he does his little inspection. And then after that, he gathers the people and he unites them by giving this kind of rousing speech. And by the end of it, they say, let's start rebuilding. That's what the people say. But how does he get there? How did he get to the point where he's been able to unite all these people who are poor, who have tried rebuilding things before, they've been smashed down. And yet Nehemiah, he's not from Jerusalem, he's an outsider. How, how has he managed to get this whole people together so that they're united with one voice to um, work? Well, there are a couple of interesting elements in his speech. Look at verse 17. First, he appeals to their need. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. 
So his point is this. Look, guys, we're in trouble. We're in a state of shame. It's not right that Jerusalem is like this. There's this, this kind of appeal to, to their shame, which is an interesting motivation. It's like, come on, come on, guys, we're in a mess. We need, to, we need to sort this out. And, you know, sometimes appeals to shame are legitimate. Um, sometimes we need to, we don't always realize the mess we're in unless someone external to us just tells us, look, look, this is not working, man. You need to, you need to change. Things need to change. That's a legitimate motivation. But the problem is, with ongoing sustaining work, shame will never work as an ongoing motivation. It's not enough. You know, lots of people work out of a sense of shame. People um, try really hard at their studies or their job so that their parents will be impressed with them or so they won't bring shame upon their family. And, you, and, you know, shame can be a powerful motivator. You can, you can work really, really hard, but it sucks the joy out of everything. You won't feel particularly encouraged or empowered if you're only working from a state of shame. You might get exhausted, burnt out, and bitter. But notice, Nehemiah doesn't stop with shame. The more powerful motivating factor comes in verse 18. Look with me. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. There's that phrase again, the gracious hand of God. That, that is God's goodness. Yes, the people of Jerusalem needed to see what their need was, but they also needed to hear about how God had been working amongst them, how he had been good to Nehemiah, how he'd arranged things so that the king would allow fresh rebuilding. This is the thing that motivates them, so that in verse 18... They reply, let us start rebuilding. And they began the good work. So it's knowing God's goodness that empowers them to rise up and to build. And they even do this with opposition looming. We're introduced to Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. We'll we'll run into those um, in a few weeks. But they're uh, political leaders of other provinces. They've got a vested interest in Jerusalem not being rebuilt. It would kind of upset the power balance for them. And so they try to taunt the building. But Nehemiah is having none of it. He says, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Just there at the end of the chapter. In other words, what we're doing is none of your business. We're going to keep rebuilding anyway. And again, the factor here is God's goodness. That is what is giving them propulsion as a people. And that's the motivation we need for any attempt to rebuild in our spiritual lives. You know, imagine a family who need to redecorate their old home. The wallpaper's grotty. The walls are in a mess. It's a a lot of work. There's plaster that's crumbling off. Um, Loads of things that need to be done. They can't afford to get anyone in, though, so they have to do it to them have to sort it out themselves. So the father speaks to his teenage son and he says, look, son, this is a big project and I want you to help me redecorate. And the teenage son's like, whoa, like I have no hand-eye coordination. I've never picked up a paintbrush in my life. Like this is bad news. You know, what, what if I do a rubbish job? What if I ruin things? You might be annoyed with me if I screw it up. And the dad smiles and he says, listen, son, I love you, 
and I'm going to help you. That changes things, doesn't it? That changes things. If the son is assured of his father's love and his help, that will energize him. And the son will want to serve his father. And that's the same with us. That's the same with us. You know, as Christians, we are called to work. We're called to be part of God's building project in his kingdom. And there is great need. There are people who we know in our communities and beyond, so many people who do not know Jesus. We want to see growth in ourselves and in our families. We know that we're, there are ways in which we don't live up to God's standards, and we want to push forward in that. And as we've said, it's a new term, an opportunity here at this church. And we're kind of calling ourselves as a church to unite and rebuild together. We, we, we need to do that. Um, but our motivation, it's not going to work or be sustaining unless we know that God has been good to us. Nehemiah told the people about God's goodness, and it was then that they said, well, let us start rebuilding. So I wonder, what, what are the aspects of God's goodness that will help motivate us? It, here's just a few. He saved us. You know, there are people in this room who you know, if you're a regular, who you would probably never chat to or get on with if you weren't a Christian. But the gospel has brought us together. It's united us from all sorts of different backgrounds and united us to a living hope. The Lord Jesus has died and risen again. He's our savior. And because of him, we have this eternal hope. You know, in 200 years time, those of us who trust Jesus will be with him in glory, completely satisfied, away from all the difficulties of this current age and looking forward to an eternity ahead. And we'll be with each other together. That's God's goodness, isn't it? But it's not as if we've only got that future thing to look forward to. God helps us now. He's given us his Holy Spirit so that we are being changed more and more into his likeness. We're given power to serve, to love others in ways that we could never love before, to take risks for the gospel, um, to forgive those who hurt us, to serve other people and be less selfish. And that's the spirit working in us. God, God gives us that power. And Jesus has said to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. As we seek to rebuild and push forward spiritually, we have a God who doesn't just leave us to it, but he's with us and assures us of his presence. As the Father said, I love you, and I'm going to help you. That's God's goodness. And we'll only, do, we'll only rebuild anything in our lives if we know God's goodness. That's what's going to sustain us. That's, one of, that's what's going to empower us. And we also know, don't we, that God has worked circumstances in a way that give us this fresh opportunity. We're meeting back together again. We're welcoming um, new people into this church. If you're new today, we're so glad you're here. Thank you for coming. We want to bless you and welcome you. It's a new term. It's fresh opportunity. Given that God has given us that opportunity, and we know that he loves us and that he'll help us. Why don't we rebuild? Why don't we look to those things in God's kingdom that perhaps we've you know, taken for granted or, or, or not addressed or given our attention and with new energy and vigor, devote ourselves to them because he's given us this opportunity. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are so many ways in which you have been good to us that we barely take notice of day to day. You have been so kind and compassionate. Things that we enjoy and have, we often don't give you thanks, and yet your inclination is still to give us good. Lord, we know that things are sometimes hard in this life, and we don't play that down, but we know that you still give us hope, particularly your children. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to know that we, we can rebuild because of your goodness to us. Help us not to do it from a sense of guilt, Lord. Help us not to do it from a sense of shame, from a sense of comparison to prove ourselves. Lord, help us to be assured of your goodness to us in the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you love us and that you want to help us. And so we pray, may we be empowered by that, encouraged by that, and may we be used by you to, to work in your harvest field, in your kingdom, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.